The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Mike Morris sits down and has a drink with East Asian policy advisor, Dr. Michael A. Morris. All right, well, uh, today um, I'm sitting down with Mike Losney, professor uh, in the NSA department, China expert, and uh, we're drinking some lagers in the Trident Room proper today. Uh, the last episode came to you from my backyard. We'll get some noise today as well. Maybe the ice maker or a plane flying over. I know you a little bit, tiny bit, but not really, I guess. Yeah, so for, so for the background, I, I, I had Mo in class, uh, but last quarter was a Zoom class. So I know him from a little box on my computer screen. Uh, and this is the first time we're actually seeing each <laughs> other right. from, from six feet away. That's Don't right. You could, have that. Been, yeah. you could have been, you know, an eight-foot giant that's, that's, or a yeah, five-foot, yeah, you right. know, two- you know, a little angry professor. I mean, who knows what I was going to face today. Which which one uh, am I closer to? Well, unfortunately, we're we're just such the both of us are just such average people, aren't we? <laughs> like, oh, we're we're not memorable at all. <laughs> being being both, both being named Michael doesn't start to no, to, 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 to stand out all that, that well, help. does it? Yeah. No. yeah. Uh, so just uh, you know, so very quickly, and then you can pull on whichever of these strings are are, are interesting. Uh, grew up in Chicago on the North Side. Um, City kid, Cubs fan, uh, ended up uh, deciding to go to Cornell in upstate New York for college. Uh, part of that drive was really wanting to have a different experience than city life, right? And uh, Cornell is very, very different in terms of being far more remote, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, a beautiful campus, which was very different from my experience of you know public public tra- public transportation Chicago to and from and to and from school the and, all that. and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, so I grew up in Illinois, but not Chicago. I said this to uh, a class the other day: is well, you know, when I'm saying I'm from Illinois, then you know somebody you're not from Chicago. Because if you're from Chicago, you say I'm from Chicago. If you're not, you say you're from Illinois. And so I'm from Illinois, which means not Chicago. Uh, but it's interesting, I think, that you're a Cubs fan, kind of, sort of. Maybe, but because you said you're from the north side. I feel like, from being from Illinois, I at least know that I feel like White Sox fans are south side Chicago, and that's, like, it. Like, I don't know where else White Sox fans live. So it's changed a little bit. Okay. I mean, th- both in number and in location, right? I mean, and when I was, you know, I was, I was born in the late 70s, and the, the White Sox were a non-entity for the most part in the city and then they won the world series and now you sort of had a new uh, oh. gen- a new a new generation well, of... everyone loves a winner exactly yeah, yeah. exactly right 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 we might what, what okay do we call that do we call that bandwagoning or or or, or <laughs> so. now i have the professor smile when, <laughs> oh, the, when, the, when, the, when the student correct, oh, correctly applies a concept that was uh, that was taught in, in the previous quarter and does it properly very good <laughs> very good <laughs> What was your experience growing up? You know, pretty middle class. Uh, my mom was a social worker. My dad was an office furniture salesman. Um, uh, we 
for the first what eight years of my life we were uh, we we're renters uh, in a sort of two 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 story apartment and then moved to uh, to a house in the mid eighties. I actually went to Chicago public schools for the whole time, but had the very, very, very fortunate experience of uh, being put into uh, into gifted programs uh, from pretty early on. So I kind of had the the best experience imaginable uh, in, in 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 city schools. In the city school system, yeah. uh, did you like? Uh, did that kind of formulate some of your uh, enjoyment or pull towards academics and academia? Because I, I mean. I don't know how you would describe yourself. Would you say like you're a nerd of the geopolitical? I have a PhD from MIT. I, I can so, I can only be so far away be, from nerd. Yeah. You know? uh, Fair. So so <laughs> when 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 I was younger, uh, I was much more into sports. Uh, I was going to be a uh, you know the next shortstop for the Cubs. Uh, oh man. That's where I, that's well, I guess I guess I guess I would be you know too old and would have had to retire by now. Call but that Bruce was Musson's interview. He wanted to be a ball player growing exa- up too. Exa- right, How come exa- I didn't want to be a ball player? What did, what's wrong with uh, me? Yeah. Growing up in Illinois, not wanting to be a ball player. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Oh exactly. my gosh. Uh, and somewhere around seventh grade, I kind of realized, you know, your chances of going pro are probably pretty minimal. You, you, you might want to, you know, start studying <laughs> and do better in school <laughs> and that will give you some opportunities. Raise yourself up. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah, and then, and and you know, I just kind of flipped the switch. Um, you know, my uh, certainly on the education side, my biggest influence is my mom, who pretty much the only the lasting memory that I have of her is just reading nonstop, right? Of just sitting on the couch late at night, reading and reading and reading. Uh, so I certainly got that bug and that influence from her. Um, and then, you know, as I said, I kind of flipped the switch. Did you kind of start doing that a lot as a kid, like watching her and seeing how much she read and that's yeah. sort of where it started? And I, and, and, yeah. And I, and I, and I read a lot as a kid. Um, what kind of, for... what kind of books or readings did you do as a kid? Was it, was it, did, was it academic? No, no, or no. Was like when I was, yeah, when I was, just, when I was young, yourself, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of crazy because I read so little fiction now, <laughs> but you know, when, uh, when I was a teenager, when I was was younger, it was almost all fiction. Um, you know, a range of 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 the great books um, we had. I still remember in our in our dining room the white bookcase uh, that had just all kinds of books. And then in my uh, in in uh, my in my bedroom, I had several bookcases. Uh, that's not surprising if you go to my house. So you if go, you, if yeah. you go to if you go to my house now, pretty now, much there yeah, are bookcases all over the place. I mean, I think even behind you in Zoom, that's our oh, yeah. view. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and then when you come into my office, when we can actually, <laughs> you know, really, really see each other, you will see wall-to-wall books and papers. And then I have more than that at home. Um, I, when I uh, when I moved. Uh, from Boston to Washington, D.C., I had a buddy who was helping me put all the stuff in the U-Haul, and he says, Glosney, moving you is like moving a small law firm. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do in D.C.? I mean, Boston, I assume, MIT years, and then you moved to D.C.? Yeah, so I went, for, so I went from Cornell, then uh, went to MIT for, for graduate school, um, and then after I finished at MIT, uh, went to work at, at the National Defense University for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. Um, what did you do while you were there? So I uh, did essentially a, a, a fellowship um, where I worked for the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs, uh, which is 
congressionally mandated and set up several years ago. Uh, and the director is Dr. Phil Saunders, uh, who is just a fantastic uh, colleague and role model. And uh, you know, I had already at MIT started to uh, learn more about the military, learn more about naval affairs. Um, I actually came to NPS back in 2002 uh, for, some, for, some, for some research that I was doing, but I was sort of already moving in that direction of uh, learning all of the academic stuff that you sure. need to know, but also being much more interested in, in the policy side of things and military affairs. And NDU was a great opportunity to uh, spend a lot more time in the Pentagon, spend a lot more time at state and kind of get a better sense of how things are, are going and what the rhythms of DC are like. Did it give you a sense of kind of what the national thinking was as well? And so you could kind of focus your research areas or is that, is that, did that influence you? So I think what, what it was helpful for and continues to be helpful to this day is to try to figure out how taking my expertise as a China expert uh, can be useful for people, right? What are the types of questions that they have? What are, what's the type of information and analysis uh, that I can really leverage my expertise and help them as they think about problems? So getting a better sense of how uh, policy is made, what policy discussions are like, um, getting a better sense of how that consumption works uh, so that I can have a better sense of what types of projects can I work on and how can I present them in ways that are actually useful to people, not just, wow, you learned a lot and your thought, you, th you, you, thought, you thought big thoughts. Thumbs yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow, there's wow. Lots of, wow, there's lots of footnotes in that article. <laughs> you must know stuff. That's... But what does that mean to the person reading it or the person you're presenting it to? So how do you translate all of this? time and thought and knowledge into policy. Right, right, right. right, um, right. I had some commentary from an unnamed professor uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of the top programs right now are more policy focused. Um, and so how do you, how do you suggest we do that? How do we translate our knowledge into policy? Yeah, I mean, so what makes NPS and NSA special relative to lots of other schools, um, both political science departments and then kind of more international affairs, public policy places, is we take regional affairs really seriously uh, in a way that the, the, the rest of the field is moving in a direction. And we talked about this a little bit in, in Intro to IR, right? A lot of it is moving much more towards uh, data. Uh, and thinking of, you know, China is just a case in my data set, Russia is just a case in my data set, uh, and it's all about generating, generating new data uh, and uh, using more advanced statistical techniques, uh, which makes sense as we're trying to understand patterns and, and, and generalizability and things like that. Um, and whereas the rest of the field is going in that direction, right? I am someone who spent two and a half years of graduate school on the ground in China, learning Chinese, interacting in Chinese, and what years were those? What when did you do that? You said in grad school. Yeah. So what did I do? Um, I spent the summer of two thousand one, the summer of two thousand two. Uh, in uh, in Beijing, doing starting a language program. I'd, I'd started studying Chinese uh, back as an, as an undergrad. Um, you know, as it is the case for 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 most things, I had a professor who just rocked my world. Um, I took a course on international relations of East Asia. You know, not surprisingly, 
even even with a pretty good education, I didn't know anything about Asia because you, you know you, you learn U.S. history, you learn European history. Maybe there's a reference to Mao somewhere in there. But, right, if you remember it. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, a right, lot of right. us, you know, just do what I call data dumps. You know, after a class, you know, especially in high school or even undergrad, it's like, well, learn that, took that test. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, and took it, and it was really um, all about the Cold War experience in East Asia, uh, taught by Tom Christensen, who then subsequently became my main advisor at MIT, uh, then later uh, went into the State Department as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for, with responsibility for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia. Um, so really, he, he just sort of lit that fire in me. And from there, you said, you know, start studying Chinese language. Whatever you do, in the future, knowing Chinese is going to be helpful. There's really no downside. So I'd started studying Chinese, started studying Chinese history, Chinese politics, all of, all of kind of trying to trying to round out that. Um, and then when I got to graduate school, there's really not time built into your program to do language in addition to doing your coursework, right? So think about from your experience, right. you have a year of doing DLI and then a year of doing coursework in graduate school. Separate. Right? Separate. 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 Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. We're given the time, right. and whoa, that's amazing. What a resource and opportunity. Right. Nobody just gets that. Right. Nobody else is given that, yeah. but here yeah. through this program we are. Yeah, and then for, so for most people, when you go to your PhD program, you're expected to take these courses, and if you want to take language classes, you're doing that in addition to the other classes, so you're not really devoted to it in the same sort of way. So in the summer of 2001, in the summer of 2002, uh, I went over, uh, over, over to, to, to China and spent probably two, two and a half months there studying language. So focusing on language, um, at what kind of level were you? Were you were you reading like kind of were you trying to study in like upper level type materials, so or was it were you still working on like conversational? I was I was still intermediate to to advanced, right? Mm -hmm. um, so sort of kind of second to third year uh, in the way that languages are sort of taught in in, in college, um, and that was helpful. But then you come back to classes, and then you're not. You know, it's not an everyday thing. So whatever you learn, you talk about the data dump right. and things going out of your brain, kind of everything I learned in the summer gets pushed out when I'm not practicing it. So then I just realized, no, I, I, I need to focus, 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 uh, and spent uh, 12 months doing an intensive language program at, at Tsinghua, uh, which is kind of the equivalent of DLI, right? So our, our, the max class size was three. So it's three okay. students um, and, you know, five hours a day of classes. It's very intense. It's you want to lose your mind, but different from DLI, right? I'm in the country. I want to go out and eat. I'm interacting with Chinese people. Um, you don't get to turn on. it off. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I did that for, for, for 12 months, um, then came back, worked on working on my dissertation for a while. Then uh, in 2005 to 2006, went over for another additional year uh, where I was doing dissertation research, collecting materials. Uh, but then my language was good enough that I was able to sit in on master's level classes in Chinese on Chinese foreign policy, on U.S.-China relations. Uh, and being, you know, the sole white guy in the class right. gave me lots of opportunities for practicing my spoken lots Chinese. Of, which lots was of not great. opportunities. Were, um, were you ever... Did you ever feel like maybe, you know, like, oh, here's the, the infiltrator or something in our classroom, and if you're asking too many questions? 
a little bit of that. I mean, I certainly in, I certainly got some strange looks from the students who weren't sure how to approach me or kind of what I was. Uh, but it was fun to have kind of the back and forth with them on different American views and Chinese views. I was going to say, it really gives you... a. a all the insight into how they view it, right? Yeah, so how yeah. does, how does, how did, in those classes and maybe in your other experience, um, how does China view U.S.-Chinese relations? Well, so this, so this was 2005 to 2006. This okay. was a period in, that was a period in U.S.-China relations where certainly relative to today, uh, but in general, relations looked pretty good. As you say, it looked, it looked uh, far more optimistic at that point, right? Yeah, there was yeah. A, a, lot, a lot. I mean, we, we, co-op, we cooperated pretty well. It's pre-global after, financial crisis. And, right, right, right. But, yeah. post, but post 9-11, right. so we were both focused. The U.S. was both focused on other things um, and then opportunities for cooperation on uh, war on terror issues. Uh, this was actually a period when the U.S. and China were working pretty closely on North Korea issues. But the six part this is this was when the six party talks was actually a useful thing and was making progress. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a lo- a, lo- a, lo- a long time ago. For yeah, sure. that is a long yeah. time ago. I mean, it's like a lifetime for me, and yet it's not. It's just, but it like that's like undergrad time for me. So it's just... yeah, and and kind of the worry at that point in time was on the Chinese side from you know the the the, the students that I was interacting with is how long are you guys going to keep this up? Because at some point you're gonna not be focused on the Middle East, not be focused on Iraq and Afghanistan, and you're going to turn your attention back to us, and we know that you hate us, and that you want to contain us, and you want to keep us weak. Uh, when is that going to happen again? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, well, what, what, what was U.S. policy at the time, uh, or I guess pre-9-11 then, that made them think, oh, we're going to focus back on containment? Like, what was the U.S. doing that to them spoke containment? Virtually everything that the U.S. does gets interpreted in uh, the most negative light in a way that makes them believe that we have nefarious intentions, right? Any any support for Taiwan, anything that we say nice about democracy. And and, and uh, again, this was a period when uh, in cross-strait relations, uh, Chen Shui-bian and the, and, the, and the DPP being in power, they were moving much more in a pro-independence direction, even in a way that was too extreme for the United States. So the United States ended up being pretty critical of Chun and being much more aligned with the PRC in their views of cross-strait relations. So it was a period where things were pretty stable. Uh, it was a period when China continued to be pretty responsible relative to what the concerns were of what China as a rising power might be. Uh, this is the period when uh, China... And of course, it's natural for a rising power to view actions from the reigning hegemony to, to think like, oh, of course, of course they want to contain us, you know. But, it, but you said it was more optimistic at the time. What changed then? Well, so, I mean, lots of things have, he- lots of things have changed since then. Um, if you look at the last 10 years and the s- precipitous deterioration of the relationship, uh, you know, under 
President Xi especially, but some of this even started uh, under, under Hu Jintao, uh, China has become more revisionist in its views on, in, 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 its, in its views and then also in its actions, right? It has taken many more actions in maritime disputes, in global governance in ways that are working at cross purposes uh, with the United States and challenging regional interests. Uh, so there's there's definitely been a change in Chinese actions, Chinese approach, Chinese behavior uh, that is a move away from that earlier period of uh, being responsible, uh, trying to reassure other actors, friendly uh, neighbors, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah char char the, char charm offensive. Within those the sorts reigning of international system, right, right. So right. I, I mean, they, had, I think they're pretty insistent that they want to be successful in the current system and don't want to replace it with a Chinese variant. But do you, uh, do you think that's sincere? So I, I, th I think it depends on your view on what your expectations were and then what it means to be revisionist, right? Um, we talk about intentions a lot in international relations and usually we talk about are they benign intentions or malign intentions, right? I mean, it's political science, so we have to have a two by two uh, and you can, right, you, can yeah. only you can only have two choices. What, what, uh, what quadrant does it follow? Exactly, through? exactly. There are no other explanations. That, that, that I, I think when you think of a rising power, uh, it is natural and normal for the rising power to want to change some things, to want to revise some things, um, to have uh, more say, to have more influence, to have the nature of the regional and international order be more reflective of China's interests or of the rising power's interests. Uh, and, and the distinction that's probably more useful is not benign, malign, but between being a uh, limited aims revisionist, right, or trying to revise some things, and then being kind of what Henry Kissinger would call a revolutionary, or uh, a country that is really trying to replace and create a whole new international order, right? The, 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 the distinction is, does China mostly want to keep the existing order in place that it has benefited from, but change some things about it to make China more important in that order? Or is China trying to blow up the whole thing and set up a whole other international order? Which one right. is it? I would say so far, the evidence suggests that they are trying to do something closer to the former, right? Of certainly trying to become more influential in writing some of the rules within that international order, but not overturning it and not trying to completely replace it, right? Now the challenge and the problem becomes, is that too much, right? Is a limited aims revisionist still too much of a challenge? Is it right? too sour of taste for, for the, the reigning? For, right, for the U.S. to handle, right? right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that, that I think, and then the other part of what has really changed uh, the bilateral relationship is a consensus view that as a result of some of the things that China has done internationally, but also things it has done domestically, we've had a complete rethink on what the approach to China should be, right? That since the Clinton administration, uh, the idea of engaging China seemed to be dominant, right? And uh, five or so years ago, people started to uh, really question 
whether or not that was working, whether or not that was successful, and whether or not that should continue to be the policy. Uh, and certainly under uh, the Trump administration, we have seen a move pretty far away from that focus on engagement. But we have seen, I think, a consensus view that there is a lot more questioning is did, engagement the right approach? Well, yeah, did, I mean, did we see that engagement, even in, in the international system, that I don't, I don't know how much success we were seeing for our intended outcomes. I mean, did we see like our approach failing, maybe? And so it's like, hey, it's time to try something new because we're not getting anywhere. Well, and I think part of this debate is a poor framing on what engagement was supposed to do, right? That on, uh, um, those who are especially critical of engagement frame it as a series of promises that were made about what the effect of engagement should be. Uh, and you know, 2007, I think it was, Jim Mann wrote a book called The China Fantasy, uh, which was really characterizing uh, the promises of engagement of being, we will engage with China, and as it grows, it will democratize. And it must be. If we're our friends and we're guiding them, we'll guide them on this path to enlightenment and democracy, right? And, and, and I think that's, there, there's a big debate about to what extent that was important in, in the initial framing of engagement. In my own view, uh, the domestic transformation and democratization was not the focus of engagement. It was, uh, and we hope this happens, right? But what has happened is under Xi Jinping, as we see... Uh, to whatever extent you saw any moves towards political reform under Jiang Zemin and, and Hu Jintao, you see a complete backslide of that, and you see Xi, Xi Jinping consolidating power, right, emphasi emphasizing the party, all of all of the all of, all the things that show that China is moving further away from what we hope for in terms of democracy. Right, but of course we can't. You know, that's that's not uh, unique to China either. You know, over the last five to seven years, hasn't that been a worldwide phenomena? Right, you could almost look to any country, just about. And, and, like, see, and, oh, wow. back, yeah, and see backsliding. Yeah, yeah. And, and look at consolidation of power. and. One of the drivers in the direction of this consensus of, of engagement having failed is what we see domestically of the promise of democratization not working. Uh, therefore, we need to try something else. Uh, I think the, the core of engagement and the hopes of engagement were not about domestic change in China. It was much more about... Uh, trying to shape China's behavior in the international system, right? of trying to say, if we pull China in and it sees that it will benefit from this existing order, that will then affect its cost-benefit calculus of how much it challenges that order versus tries to support that order. Uh, and will also change the way China defines its own interests. And now that it's a part of that system and fully brought in, uh, right, so much of this background is, you know, we spent the Cold War really, really containing China and keeping China out of uh, the United Nations, uh, had trade embargoes on it, formed alliances that were really aimed at China. Uh, so this, it, this was a, a wholesale change in, in the approach to China. And what we have seen is a, 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 a difference in assessment of how well that has worked, right? Uh, those that are most critical of it, uh, I think, had expectations that if we engage China, China's just going to do exactly what we want and not going to challenge anything and just going to be uh, a pliant uh, little schoolboy who will fall in line and do exactly what we want. And I think that was never a reasonable 
hope, right? That China was was always going to have its own say, especially as it got more powerful. Um, but I think the question then becomes, uh, as it becomes more powerful, is it really trying to overthrow and overturn that order, or is it trying to make changes in that order, right? And, and again, I think it's much more that they're trying to make changes in that order. And those are changes that are not comfortable for the United States to make, right? We liked that order the last 60 years where we, we were in charge. It. Exactly. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Because right, right, right. it was for our benefit. Right. Let's, I mean, let's, not, let's, not, <laughs> let's not split any hairs here. That was... It's for us. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And, and one of, the, one of the, the phrases that's used in the policy world all the time is we need, to, we need to deal with the China that we have, not the China we wished we had. Right. I could see that. You could apply that lesson to other uh, areas exactly, life, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, do, you, do, you, do you think we're headed in a more, I don't know, beneficial direction for United States foreign policy towards China? Is it too antagonistic? Is it, uh, how are they going to react? Is which, which, where is it leading us? Yeah, I, I mean, don't want to throw you into the prediction world, which we know, you know, is not our world of international relations necessary. We're more into explanatory power, not necessarily predictive power, but, you know, you're, he learned, he learned that from me, you know? Yeah. So, so, but, but where, where is this going to drive us? Yeah. And, and I think I can, I can absolutely understand the frustration with the direction of the relationship and the direction of China, right? A belief that even by, I think, more fair and objective standards of what we hoped to accomplish, uh, China's more aggressive behavior is making it really hard for those who really want to have a cooperative relation and want to continue engagement and think that if that's the right way forward, it, it makes it really hard to make an argument of here is how this is helping, right? Here is how this is helping the United States. So the frustration is completely understandable. The desire to try something new is completely understandable. Um, I think what we're lacking still is uh, a more coherent strategic logic for what we're trying to accomplish and then how moving in this more hardline direction is going to accomplish. So it's kind of like you kind of sense that we're missing an end game here for like our current relationship status. Yeah. Because, right. I mean, we've seen, we see in the national security documents, you know, that, you know, China focus, the era of FBI great power director era, last the, week, a couple yeah. weeks ago, names China, our greatest adversary or threat. Um, CNO and, Admiral Gilday last week yep. backed that idea up, you know, in China focus, China focus. Um, it does seem very escalating and adversarial right now. And so people who hope for a cooperation and engagement are kind of uh, um, losing outside maybe right now, yeah? So Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo, gave a speech not long ago that had a little bit of optimism in there, that it wasn't just all great power competition, all China's revisionist, all the Chinese Communist Party is evil, uh, and we need to keep Chinese out of our universities and all that sort of thing. He did... Uh, at least make an, a nod to recognizing what was kind of the fundamental view throughout the Bush and, and Obama administrations was, yeah, we have problems. We have er areas where our interests aren't aligned. There are areas where China is causing problems. But we have so many common interests that we need to cooperate on so many issues. Right? And I think most of the policy statements hadn't had that aspect of it. Um, so I was somewhat 
heartened by Pompeo talking about that. Now the question is how you then manage that relationship where where you disagree, you're becoming much more adversarial, is certainly going to have some spillover effects on whether or not you're able to cooperate, right? And, and the difficult, right, I mean, the, the, this is probably the most complex geopolitical relationship we've seen certainly in the last century um, of how you manage this problem is not easy. Well, sure. I mean, we, like, what, 10, 15 years ago, we imagined a flashpoint around Taiwan, and now we can imagine probably three or four flashpoints or more right, with China. Right, right. I mean, what what are some of those right now? Or I mean, well, they're all, I mean, Hong they're, Kong. I mean, there's there's yeah. I'm like, there's lots of. I mean, there's you, you say potential. South China Seas. You say potential flashpoints. I mean, there's several that are flashing, flashing right now, right? Yeah. I mean, you have you, you have what's going on with India and on the border. Oh well, yeah. I've yeah. For, for, <laughs> right about that too. Yeah, 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 right, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah, I forgot here's about pe- that one. Here's yeah. people with you know like mallets with nails like you think like old maces and like medieval weapons because they've agreed not to have like firearms like gunpowder and you're, you're like gunpowder revolution out the door we're like okay we're just gonna fight and batter each yeah, other yeah, to yeah. death like how gory is that like we're just not used to that are yeah, we yeah. so the the, the the flashpoints are much more regional south china sea east china sea what's going on in the korean peninsula hong kong um the the the, the bigger challenge is not just regional, right? As China is becoming, becoming is a complete global actor and is now everywhere. Yeah, I was in- going to drive towards that. They're not necessarily looking to be regional. They're looking to be global. Yeah, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I teach Chinese foreign policy and I will have students who spent time in Africa, spent time in Latin America, who say, yeah, the Chinese are everywhere. What's going on? I'm taking your class because I want to learn a little bit more about what's going on because the Chinese are everywhere. Uh, and... That's a change, right? That's an adjustment uh, for the United States to recognize that the number two power in the world is projecting economic power with potential geopolitical implications pretty much everywhere, right? That is, it is a challenger. It is a competition. Um, but back to kind of the idea of, of lacking the strategic logic of understanding what's going on in our policy. We call right. it we call it great power competition. But it's not clear what we're competing over. That's what I was going to ask really quick. So, like, China's focusing on these areas and are everywhere, right? We're everywhere, too, the U.S. is. But is China focusing in areas where we're not so present? And do those areas that China is in, does does it represent a competitive threat to the United States? Or do you think they're trying to spur action? I'm just coming up with this idea right now. Are they trying to spur action by the U.S. to be like, oh, maybe the U.S. will follow us into this area and expend more resources and stretch thinner? And try and level the playing field. I mean, What's for, going on? yeah, for the for the most part, especially once you get outside of the region, uh, it is more driven by economic considerations than it is a geopolitical calculus of let's look for the soft belly, the soft underbelly in Latin America as a way to put pressure on the United States. So is the United States missing out in some of these economic and geopolitical? areas that China has it, it, shown it, itself? It, 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 it is, um, but I think the, the way we are responding to it is putting those countries in a difficult situation, right? So we've been neglecting much of the developing world for a long time. Uh, as China is now throwing a bunch of money around the world, we now look at that and say, oh, wait a second, we don't like China expanding its influence around the world uh, so maybe we should also start trying to look into giving some more money for infrastructure as a way of responding to the Belt and Road Initiative. But the, pro- the problem is if we frame it as 
we're only responding to China, and these countries need to choose China or the United States. Well, China came here first and offered this up, kind of. And you know. and and and. And you've been ignoring us forever, right? As a right, right. Power. Yeah, yeah. So what? Like, why are you here now? Right. Goodbye. You yeah, know, yeah. Like, yeah. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on July seventeenth, twenty twenty. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.